You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are indeed the word made flesh, and that in you there is life, and life indeed, life uh, that's abundant, life that's eternal. And so we ask this morning, even as we study the word and the way in which the word is about you and reveals the truth about you, we ask, Lord, that you would cause that truth uh, not just to be uh, something that our mind can assent to, but would you cause that truth to be something that we live out? Um, that we would follow you the way, the truth, and the life all the days of our lives, and that we would glorify you in the way we live our life, and that others, in seeing the way we live, would come to put their whole trust in you. And so we ask this, um, that this work, this work of transforming us as Christians um, into your likeness, that that would be done right now, even in this 45 minutes that we have together. And we ask this for your glory's sake and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this is the first of four um, Sundays that I'll be teaching on the letter of First John, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I, I feel like every book is like my, once I study it a little more in depth, I suddenly I'm, wow, Lord, you do so many amazing things through your word. And so First John is a very short letter, um, like many of the other epistles, like many of John, uh, Paul's epistles. Not as short as Second and Third John, which are just a couple of verses, really. Um, but First John was written, we're reasonably sure it was written by John the Evangelist, or the Apostle. Um, he um, is acting as a pastor, as a counselor, as a theologian, to a church. And we know based on what the early church father said, the tradition says that he was in the town of Ephesus in Asia Minor, um, which is now modern-day Turkey, during the second, uh, the last third of the first century. So think A.D. 70, roughly to about A.D. 100. And so we know that he, um, he's probably of the apostles of the 12. He's the one so far that we know that lived the longest, um, and which means he might have been a very young man when he was following Jesus in, uh, in the early, you know, in the 20s. Um, AD. So it's kind of exciting to see he's lived to be this ripe old age. And if you know, he also wrote the, um, the revelation um, and he received the revelation while he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And so they think that he, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, who are early church fathers, believe that he returned back to his church in Ephesus after that. And so he's writing probably to the church in Ephesus, but we know that these letters, not just letters of John, but also Paul's letters, once they were read by one church, they'd be passed around so that other people could be edified and learn from them as well. And so we think that not only Ephesus received this letter, but it was also especially passed around to the other churches in Asia Minor. And in Revelation, Jesus himself has a word for the seven churches in Asia Minor. And so this likely is a lot of the themes that Jesus directly deals with those churches about in Revelation. We hear Paul, uh, John echoing about in this letter as well. So that's who John wrote it, likely to the church in Ephesus, um, where they were. That's the who and where. I like to do who, what, where, when, why. So many of you who um, come with me on Monday mornings know that that kind of helps me set the stage for understanding what's going on in a Bible passage. I kind of think of it as putting on my, my Nancy Drew um, magnifying glass 
and looking very closely at the text and saying, okay, let's get out our detective lens and look at the text and understand what the context is before we look at what the word is actually saying because that's going to inform us and help us understand it. So we did who and where, when, well, we know that this was probably written in the closing decades of the first century, maybe as early as 80, maybe later than that. We're not fully sure. um, We know what it's about. We know that this letter um, is really talking about God and the character of God and what his character means for daily Christian living. So there are three components to this. John um, talks about this kind of theological truth. Um, that is rooted and grounded in history and yet has this deeply spiritual aspect to it so that the truth, even as I prayed just now, is not just something that we think about with our minds but is something that pervades our whole being, something that um, travels those 12 inches between our head and our heart, that the truth is not just something we can say, yes, 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 I think of that, I can assent to these facts, but rather the truth um, is something that we we experience in our heart, in our very gut. The truth is something that transforms our whole lives and the way we live. Um, And even the truth, of course, is Jesus Christ. And in John's Gospel, in chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's no mistake that John has picked up on that I am statement from Jesus in John's Gospel. And he is um, so uh, concerned to make sure that these Christians in Ephesus know the truth about Jesus. And we think that part of that is because there's been a disagreement. And some of the Christians have left the church, and they're saying other things. And so John is very keen to say, no, not those things that they're saying. This right here is the truth, the whole truth. Nothing but the truth about Jesus Christ. Um, So there's this um, interest in the truth. There's also, so that's one component. A second component to the letter is this ethical integrity. Essentially, what we do, and we heard some of this in our sermon today, just now, um, which you'll hear at 11 o'clock if you haven't heard it yet. What we do in this life matters. The way we live matters. The way we treat other people matters. Um, And so there's this sense of that theological truth being played out in ethical integrity that if we are Christians, then we ought to live a certain way. And John is going to talk about this again to be able to show those that left the church. They're not, they're not believing the same things we're believing. They're also not behaving in the same way that we as Christians would behave. So you can identify the falsehood of what they're saying and what they're doing um, together because of what they're, what they're doing doesn't match up um, with the truth of what God calls us um, to, uh, to do in the way we live our lives. So there's that truth theologically. There's the ethics of doing. There's also a beautiful relational warmth. And this is one of my favorite aspects of the letter. You can tell that John really likes them. He doesn't just love them. Do you know, I think I used to say to people, I really love you, but I don't really like you, which is a terrible (laughs) thing to say. I think I would say that to my sister a lot when we were fighting as little children. Um, John really likes them as well as loving them. There's so much warmth in this letter, and you can tell he talks about it. We're going to see it in the first couple verses that we'll turn to in just a minute. That warmth is vertical between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and then experienced in a one-way direction, the unconditional love of God for us. And then as Christians, that warmth also um, spreads out in a horizontal way. There is this love that we have one for another. And John talks about love so much. We're going to talk about that a lot next week, what he has to say about that. So this relational warmth involves love and joy. Um, He talks about that joy pretty deeply in these first couple of verses. So we'll look at that in just a minute. Well, how? One thing to think about in the what of what John says 
he says it in a way that's very interesting. The how of the way John writes this letter is very interesting. John is different, and I relate to him in this way. I am not a linear thinker. Do you know someone who can do A, B, C, D when they were writing papers in college or in high school? Maybe they could do a whole outline, just throw it out on a paper, do one, two, three Roman numerals, A, B, C, D, boom, they're done. Um, they can just go from one thought to another thought to another thought, just like a chain of thoughts. That's not how my brain works. <laughs> my brain, when I'm doing this, or when I'm especially when I'm preparing to preach, what I do is I have to throw up all the ideas, because I like to see all the ideas. And so I have to throw them out on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard like a constellation of stars. And then, um, or first I throw out all the stars in the universe, which is maybe a lot. That's why it takes me a long time because there are so many things to say. And then I'll connect the dots through a set of stars so that there's a constellation, hopefully, of what I'm saying. And that's the only way I can get A to B to C to D is by doing that and then piecing it all together. Well, I think John's maybe a little bit like me in that. John does not think necessarily in that A, B, C, D format. And that's why it's really hard. One commentator says, um, you know, you want to have a breakdown and outline of these books of the Bible. And if you have a good study Bible, and I hope you do, at the beginning of it, it will have an outline of a Bible uh, book, a book of the Bible. And that can be really helpful for understanding what's going on. But John's, got, John's letter is notoriously hard break down in an outline. What they say instead, I love this, one of the ways to understand how he's telling, um, how he's speaking in this letter to these Christians is that it's like a symphony. And I'm not musical, but I understand that a symphony, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone who knows better about music, a theme musically is introduced, but ba 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 or whatever, and then the theme is embellished upon. It'll come back up five minutes later in the symphony, and it will be but but up, but then they've added extra flourishes, and they've embellished it. And so what you'll see is that John is going to repeat himself a lot, which can get frustrating. If you're like, John, we know, but you have to pay attention for what he's adding to the information. And so it almost goes in this rolling fashion. It's as though he picks up the... He, says the theme, he picks it back up and introduces something else about it, he picks it back up again. So it could be said that it's like a spiral form of communication. And he's getting somewhere, you just have to be patient with him, um, just like me. Um, so the other thing is that it's like a tapestry. Sometimes the themes go behind the work, just like a thread in a tapestry. If you're sewing, if you do cross stitch the way my mother did cross stitch, you know, the front of her cross stitch was always so beautiful, but my mother is so organized that the back of her cross stitch was really, really beautiful too. She would be able to tie all the loose ends so you wouldn't even see them. You would just see these little lines of the different colors. Well, tapestry, you'll have the thread on the front and then it comes back behind the tapestry and it's existing, it's there still in the back of the mind of the writer, but then he'll bring it back up at another point. And so that's another way in which he writes. Okay, Let, any thoughts or questions about that before we move on to actually reading some of the letter? Okay. Can anybody, this is a vision test, can anybody read this from up here or from your Bible in your lap? Do you go ahead, Jeff, thank you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You, you passed the vision test. <laughs> Is there anything that you notice? Hopefully you can read it as well or in um, the hearing of the word. Anything you notice about this little prologue, this introduction to the whole letter? Yeah. Well, he focuses on that he's they've seen it, and it's so he's trying to tell them that it's truth and why it's truth. Yeah, it's true. What he's about to tell them is true, and he's going to say, "You can trust me that this is true because I've seen it with my own eyes." And I'll get into that in just a little minute. That's great. Thanks, Forsyth. Anyone else have anything they want to point out that they notice a theme that's repeated? Okay. Well, when we get into this, do you hear how it starts out? That which was from the beginning. This is a phrase he's going to repeat again and again throughout the letter. Well, in the beginning echoes John's gospel. In John's gospel, in the first part of John's gospel, and we'll get to hear this always on Christmas Day and the first Sunday after Christmas. We always get to hear a sermon from John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, the word, was a he. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you hear as you're looking through some other themes that are similar? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So looking at that, in the beginning, we hear um, there is this sense in which Jesus, the word, existed before creation existed. He is eternal. He is equal to the Father. That's what John is showing in his gospel. And he's giving the gospel hearers in his gospel writing, he's giving them privileged information before he goes on to tell about Jesus' earthly life. He's saying, guess what? He is God. Jesus is the word who existed before creation was made. He is God. And in writing his gospel this way, John is echoing Genesis 1, the very beginning. In the beginning, John is consciously saying, in the beginning, just like that Jesus, um, before he was incarnate, Jesus, before he was a babe born as a baby in Bethlehem, he existed and he was there at the beginning um, when all creation was made. And indeed, we say all creation was made through him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and so um, we see Jesus is shown, and John is keen to show Jesus as being, actually, let me go forward, keen to show Jesus as being transcendent as well as imminent. These are big theological words. So transcendent means that Jesus is equal to God. He is far from us in the sense that he is perfectly holy. He has majesty and glory. He has all of those divine attributes, omnipotence, omniscience. If you could go through all of those things that you think about when you think about God, Jesus has all those things. And so that theological word transcendence is a way of saying Jesus is far from us in our created nature because he is uncreated. He is um, eternal. And so, um, again, when I think of transcendence, I think of far. And when I think of imminence, which is the opposite, I think of near. And forgive me for some of those who might have heard me use this illustration before, but I always think of Sesame Street because uh, that was the only TV we were allowed to watch when I was a child. And there were about six episodes, so we saw them a lot again and again and again. I really learned all my colors. I really learned all my letters very early on. And I learned, you know, I learned near and far because there was a little Muppet 
that would run all the way up to the camera and be like, near. And then you'd run all the way back from the camera and be like, far, near, far. And so I learned near and far that way. And I always think about that when I think about God's transcendence and the imminence then of Jesus Christ. Um, God comes near. God draws near to us in Jesus. And so in this prologue, we hear a transcendence, the farness of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, um, that which was with the Father, um, he... Well, this is about him. This is about Jesus, even though he's using some neutered language there. Um, with the Father, and also this word of life. The word was something in Jewish thought that was seen to be um, exist, uh, uh, equal to God, a part of God's very nature, even. They understood that in the Old Testament. So we see transcendence here in John's uh, the prologue to his letter, but we also see nearness, and that's what you were getting at, Forsyth. Do you hear it? He was made manifest, it says twice. I have lots of bolding and italics in there, but you can see two italicized, made manifest. And then there's all this sensory language. The word, which was from the beginning, John, and not just John, but a couple of other people, I'm not going to talk about that in a minute, heard the word, they have seen with their eyes, they have looked upon again eyes, they have touched with their hands concerning the word of life. And I can only think in John's gospel, remember how Thomas, doubting Thomas, he said, I will not believe, He even it's very emphatic, I will never believe because Jesus came by to see the disciples on Easter night, and Thomas wasn't there. And Thomas said, no way. I will never believe unless I can touch the wounds. And it's very graphic. Unless I can shove my finger in the nail hole, shove my hand in his side, I will never believe that he rose from the dead. And then Jesus graciously, a week later, appears and presents his body to be touched by this doubting Thomas. And Thomas doesn't need to touch anymore. He says, I got it. <laughs> I believe. And he falls down. I see him falling down on his knees. My Lord and my God. Um, this sensory language shows us that the word uh, was made flesh. Jesus is fully God, transcendent and far, and fully human, near to us, imminent. Um, and this sensory language does another thing. It shows us that the author, John the Apostle, was an eyewitness of these things about Jesus Christ. He came not just, he's not just the only eyewitness, but he came, he comes from a community of eyewitnesses. When John uses we, that is what he's looking at. Paul uses we a lot, and it's sort of like the royal we when Paul writes. <laughs> it's really interesting. Or because he's talking about his companions. He always has an entourage. Um, so Paul's maybe saying we in that way. But John here is saying we, meaning he and the other apostles who have seen Jesus, who have touched Jesus, who have heard Jesus in the flesh. And not only that, but, um, well, let's see. John, okay, also said in his uh, prologue, to his gospel, this same sensory language. The word became flesh about the incarnation and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John was there along with Peter and James, present at the Mount of Transfiguration. Just before, um, just before, well, Jesus comes down and heals the man uh, possessed, or the boy possessed by a demon, if you recall. But before that, and really on the way to Jerusalem, in a bigger sense, Jesus allows a part of his heavenly glory to be revealed to those three closest disciples, if you recall. It's almost as though the veil between heaven and earth is lifted. And Peter and James and John see Jesus for who he really is in all of his transcendence, in all of his divinity. Um, and this sense of the we also is important because in a Jewish court of law, um, testimony was not valid unless there were two witnesses who bore witness. 
So he's saying this is true. This is going to hold up in a court of law. And he also uses that same word testify to show his authority. That testifying is a way of bearing witness to the truth. And so that's where the truth is not necessarily... um, not necessarily this intellectual fact. It's the truth of what happened historically that's so important. Okay, um, so we're getting a sense for who John is and what he is talking about. He's talking about the message is about concerning this word of life, and then also the message is um, proclaimed to them. The eternal life is going to be proclaimed to them. And why is this message proclaimed? Why is John proclaiming? Well, here's where the relationship comes into play. Do you see this? Why? So that. Whenever you see a so that in scripture, it's, a, it's telling you why something is happening. It's happening so that you too may have fellowship with us. The Christians there in Ephesus would have fellowship with John, and John and they would have fellowship together with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And this fellowship, this relational um, intimacy provides joy. It brings joy. John is writing so that he would have joy because it gives him great joy when those that he served, um, when those that he has pastored, come to believe in Jesus Christ and to live out their faith fully. John takes joy in the emotional and spiritual health of those he pastors. Well, let's move on to um, to the next few verses. Does someone want to try their reading reading exam, their eye test, um, and read verses 5 through 7? Great. Thank you, Pat. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Thank you, Pat. Anybody notice anything about these short few verses here? Anything you want to point out? Any words that ring out to you or phrases that seem as though they're repeated? Light. Light, yeah. Where did you see light elsewhere, elsewhere, Pat? Did we have it? Um, I can go backwards. John's first yeah, in John's gospel. He and John there, in John's prologue, we see in him was life, um, and the life was the light of men. So you're, you're right. And uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not come overcome it. John bore witness about the light. This is John the Baptist, just like John the Evangelist would go on to bear witness. But John the Baptist was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light, Jesus Christ himself. Um, which is interesting because John in his gospel is echoing Genesis. And God said in verse 3, the very first thing, let there be light. And there was light. And uh, God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Um, there was light in the very beginning. So part of this light language has to harkens back to that. Thank you for that. There's also a sense this is the content of the proclamation. This is the message, he starts out, that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. This is the message of the whole gospel. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. These other people that have left the community, if they're doing bad things, then they're not, and they're saying bad things, they're not of God. They haven't fully grasped the truth about Jesus Christ. They're not from the light. And so he's saying, it's okay that you don't have fellowship with them, that they've broken fellowship with you, because they were never from God in in that sense. Um, and so this, again, this fellowship 
you cannot have um, fellowship with God and then walk in darkness. You cannot do that. And he's, we're going to go on and talk about that in a little bit, about what that walking means. But this duality of light and darkness is something we're going to see throughout the whole letter. And the duality of light and darkness, light on one side and darkness on the other, truth on one side and lies on the other, fellowship and intimacy relationally with God and with each other on one side, separation and the pain of separation on the other side, cleansing and forgiveness from sin on the one side, contamination from sin on the other side, and judgment. And later on, other dualities would come into play. Also, love and hate is all throughout this this letter. We're going to look at that next week. And combined with these, all of these, is life and death. And um, for me, this language, this stark duality between light and dark, um, life and death, for me, it really hit home at an early age. So as many of you know, my parents, my dad's a pastor, and my mother's very involved in ministry as well. And right after I was born, my dad had his first church, which was in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, which is, um, if you don't know that, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Birmingham, Alabama, have in common that they were both great steel cities. Um, and so Pittsburgh had a big crash in the 80s where all, a lot of the steel mills closed down. And there was a mill right in Aliquippa. And when it closed, so many people were unemployed. And there was a lot of depression. It was a very tough time. And that was my dad's first call, was to be the pastor of the church, the Episcopal Church in Aliquippa. And so it was a real challenge. They were going to shut down the church. And that's why they called my father there as this 25-year-old um, guy who they thought didn't know anything and they just thought well he'll put it to bed nicely and he can't make any mistakes because it's already dying and what happened but um but he started preaching and ministering and it grew and it grew and it grew and they planted another church (laughs) and it's amazing what god can do even in the midst of the death throes of a church um and so what happened there i remember i must have been younger than five because we moved from that church when I was five, and we, we went there when I was born. There was a girl in the youth group, and the church was in a downtown area, very busy, on a busy street downtown. And during youth group one night, this girl, I think she was in early high school, so maybe like a freshman or a sophomore in high school, had walked out and started across the street without really looking. And a car had come and hit her. And um, I don't know if it was a hit or run or not, but I just remember vaguely that this had happened, that there was this trauma and drama happening. You know when you're a young child and all there's a swirl, a tornado, as my husband likes to say, all around. Um, and so there was a huge tornado surrounding this young girl's um, lying there. She was lying in the middle of the road. She, they had some medical professionals in the congregation that came out, and she didn't have a pulse. And so they all started praying, and they called the paramedics, of course. First called the paramedics. I'm sure they were praying while they were called the paramedics. But then, and then corporately, they started praying. And, um, and before the paramedics got there, she came back to life. Either she had died and came back, or she was revived. Um, but I believe it was a miracle. And they believed it was a miracle because she had had no pulse. And when she was feeling better, she bore witness to what happened when she had had those moments of not having a pulse on, on the road in the middle of this busy city. And she said that she had seen a light, a uh, bright light, and that she was going towards the light, and then suddenly she wasn't, and she was coming back. 
Um, and that is, we hear that so often when people have near-death experiences or when, or maybe when they code and they're dead for a few minutes and they come back, there is this sense of light after death and life after death. And I remembered hear, hearing that story and being um, so amazed by it. And at the same time, in this same community, there was a community in the same town called the Community of Celebration. And this was like 19... 79 through 1984. So of course they were Christian hippies in this community, in this little depressed steel town. And they were writing music and they lived together and fellowship all these families and individuals. And we, because we're the pastor's family, we spent a lot of time with them. And I remember them singing all the time we would sing. And one of the songs I remember them singing was a song that one of their members actually wrote. And so it was just part of their rota. And the song is in our hymnal. It's number 490 in our hymnal and it goes like this. I want to walk as a child of the light. I want to follow Jesus. God set the stars to give light to the world. The star of my life is Jesus. In him there is no darkness at all. The night and the day are both alike. The lamb is the light of the city of God. Shine in my heart, Lord Jesus. I want to see the brightness of God. I want to look at Jesus. Clear son of righteousness, shine on my path and show me the way to the Father. I'm looking for the coming of Christ. I want to be with Jesus. When we have run with patience the race, we shall know the joy of Jesus. We were singing that song around the same time this girl died and came back and had this testimony about the light. Doesn't that sound like John? And you hear how this quotes Kathleen Thomerson when she wrote this was quoting 1 John among many other scriptures that have to do with light and Jesus is the light. One of my favorite other ones is in Revelation where in the heavenly city, in the new Jerusalem, when heaven descends and God makes his dwelling once and for all with men and women on earth, then uh, there will be no need for sun or moon because the lamb will be the light in the city of the new Jerusalem. And that image of light um, just emanating from Jesus Christ, his life being light in his perfect holiness. He's the only uh, man or woman, the only human being that ever obeyed the law perfectly. Um, his perfection in being fully God um, with all of his majesty and all of his glory. And then the light of his love for us in his sacrifice there on the cross that he would love us that much. When I kind of knew all this in the way a preschool child knows it. And hearing this song and knowing the story about that girl made me say, yeah, I want, the, I want that. I want the light. I want to walk as a child of the light. And that is what John is talking about here. Do you hear the language for walking? If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. Well, walking means, throughout the Bible, walking is a phrase that means living, the way you live. And so walking, when John is talking about walking here, walking means living as a Christian. It means being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means following Jesus. In the Old Testament, literally the word for the Jewish law was literally translated halakha, the way of walking or the way of behaving. And so in the Jewish mindset, the way we behave, the way we live was married with this idea of walking. If all of life is a journey, maybe if your ancestor is a wandering Aramean like Abraham, as it said in our Thanksgiving lesson today from Deuteronomy, if your ancestor was Abraham who never had an earthly home but only lived in tents, 
and was always picking up and moving to the next place where God told him to go, then maybe all of life is a journey. And living this life, we understand, as walking. Maybe that's how the word got to mean that um, the language was behind that. And we hear it in um, Deuteronomy, walking. Here's Deuteronomy 5, right before the law is given again. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord, or after, excuse me, as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. How's that for walking? Walk straight. You shall walk in all the way, the paths that the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. This same language of walking as the way of living and behaving is all throughout Paul's letters. I only gave you two examples, but it's everywhere. And every single one of his letters, when Paul turns to the now what, of how do we live or how do we behave, he almost always uses this language of walking. Um, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And again in Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not ratify the desires of the flesh. There are so many other walking ones from Paul. Well, this idea of walking in the truth, what does walking in the truth for John mean? Walking in the light and in the truth involves telling the truth, telling the truth about Jesus and telling the truth about ourselves, believing in Jesus, receiving forgiveness and cleansing from sin, having fellowship with the triune God and with other Christians, obeying the commandments, and loving our brothers and sisters. Walking in the light involves all those things in John's letter. Well, as Christians, we're called through the way we walk and the way we live to tell the truth, and specifically to tell the truth about Jesus. Um, Jesus is fully God and fully man, even as we saw in the prologue. Um, And uh, John tells the truth in the prologue and throughout the letter. He is telling the truth and he is paving the way. He's showing the spiritual children how to walk this way in following the truth. Jesus is fully God, and we hear this also in... um, Well, he's fully God. He's from the beginning. He is the word we saw in the prologue. He is the Christ, the Messiah, um, John will go on to say. John will also say Jesus is fully human. Um, He says both things in this letter, and anyone who denies either one of those things is not fully a Christian. He says that there long before the creed was ever written. Jesus Christ is also Savior, and he uses two big words to describe what that means. Jesus is our advocate, and he is also the propitiation for our sins. So the truth about Jesus as Christ, um, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? These are those who left the community, and they were not saying they were saying that Jesus was not the Messiah. Remember, the word Christ means Messiah, and so John is keen to say, "No, that's the truth about Jesus, and um, it must be confessed in order to consider yourself a Christian." Jesus is fully God. In chapter four, he would go on to say, "Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him." He and God. And about Jesus is fully man. In John chapter 1 John chapter 4, again, by this you know the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is seen as being the Spirit of truth who reveals the truth about God and about his son Jesus. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Those that went out from this community of believers, if they were not say if they were saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, which was a classic Gnostic belief, um, Gnostic um, false Christian belief, then they are not Christians is what he is saying. Christians tell the truth about Jesus. He is fully God. He is fully man. He's not just a great teacher. 
He is not just a spiritual Christ who has nothing to do with our earthly and historical existence. No, he's fully both. And not only that, um, we often find it's very common in our culture where people, where everyone seems to be a Christian, to say, well, I want Jesus to be this, or my Jesus isn't like that. Whenever someone says my Jesus, I'm like, mm, not your Jesus. I mean, he is, but he's a person. You can't say my Jesus wouldn't do that if you're reading scripture and Jesus does that. And that's where um, the intellectual tradition and even the scholarship <laughs> tradition in studying scripture has gotten us in a pickle because sometimes these very modernist and then postmodern scholars <laughs> want to pick and choose which passages are going to be authoritative in their minds. And so there are even, the Jesus Seminar even cast votes on which, um, which passages are authoritative in their minds because of their historicity. And so what they end up doing, one scholar at the end of all of this, um, critical theory and critical thought about scripture said basically anybody who wanted to construct a Jesus from scripture is looking down this well of history and they're finding at the bottom of the well that there's water and the water is reflecting back to them their own reflection they are making Jesus in their own image my Jesus wouldn't do that well you wouldn't do that so you think Jesus wouldn't do that or my Jesus would do this well you think you would do that so you want Jesus to do that too we want to be God and we want God to be a satellite of us and we want Jesus to be a satellite of us and that's where scripture tells us Jesus is fully man fully God and he is also our advocate and our propitiation for sin and John talks about sin he talked about sin earlier in chapter 1 and now he goes on to say I am writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, these two words, advocate, first of all, means that God is uh, that Jesus is like the lawyer defending us on our behalf, speaking to God the Father. And propitiation is the actual sacrifice in the temple. Propitiation not only cleanses from sin, but also appeases the wrath of the Father. And Jesus Christ is both those things. In the book of Hebrews, um, the letter, to, uh, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus is both the high priest and he's the sacrificial lamb. And this idea simultaneously gets to that. He is both the one making intercession and he is the pleasing uh, offering, the pleasing sacrifice himself. Um, in going to the cross himself, in being just like that ram that was provided for Abraham when he went to sacrifice his son Isaac. God has provided a way for us back into fellowship with God when we sin. And so this is where part of being a Christian, a major part of being a Christian, is that we tell the truth about ourselves. We are not perfect. We have not done right. And we do this every Sunday. We confess our sins. And the reason we confess our sins is because it's just a part of the Christian life. It's a part of receiving, once again, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's receiving grace. It's having an accurate picture of who we are. I haven't done right. And we might think, oh, it's self-flagellation. Do you ever think, well, you have people say, oh, well, you have a low self-esteem if you're always confessing your sins. Well, no, actually, I have a high view of God's grace. And when we get down on our knees and then stand back up again, we're raised up um, in, in new life. Every time we get down on our knees, um, we're raised up by the word of the absolution of God's grace extended to us through Jesus Christ, of his wrath being turned away, of us being forgiven and free, of us being accepted by God no matter what we do or have done. 
And so that is part of the good news that keeps us humble and keeps us close to God. That grace draws us near, um, allows us to enter into intimate fellowship with God the Father. Um, So all of that to say, Christians are truth tellers. When we walk in the way, following in the way of Jesus Christ as his disciples, part of that involves telling the truth about Jesus and telling the truth about ourselves. Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you for the good gift of your life poured out for us. Um, And once again, we say, even um, as Kathleen Thomerson wrote, uh, I want to walk as a child of the light. We want to be ones that follow you, that walk in your footsteps, that obey you. Um, But we know that we are weak. We know that we are um, broken and sinful on our own. And yet we know that in you, we're made whole. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do within us what we cannot do for ourselves. Would you cause um, your perfect law to rise up within us, that we would desire to obey you with our whole heart, that we would desire to be children of the light, and that that light would um, pour out in our lives to those, um, every single person that we come across, and that their lives would be blessed as a result, and that you would be glorified. And so we ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.